and family. I hope uh, as you sing that song, how we recognize our need, um, you think about those words and maybe we'll learn from what we read today that the, the, the nation of Judah had to go through um, to recognize their need for God. Um, it's turning your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 4. We'll, we'll be in Lamentations chapter 4 for uh, the next step in our series, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies. Hope that you got a chance to read this chapter, um, both of the biblical text and also the chapter in the book this week. It is, if you haven't, go back and read uh, the chapter. It's really helpful to kind of see how Israel got to where they're at. But if you haven't, I got good news. The truth is rooted in God's word, so we're going to be there uh, this morning and see how we can learn from what happened to them. Pastor Nathan talked about uh, flight data recorders, or the black box, a couple weeks ago as an example or a picture of what Lamentations chapter 4, Lamentations as a whole, uh, provides us as, as God's people living now so we can learn from what happened with the nation of Israel. If you're not familiar with black boxes or you weren't there that week, that week obviously this is, this is a part of what, what investigators use to determine why a plane went down. And as he shared this analogy with us, I had a moment where I was like, this is just the perfect picture, at least to me, a visual learner, of, of, why, of why we have the book of Lamentations. Why did God put that in his word for us to have today? Because it is here for you. So as, as I thought about the black box and thought about uh, a plane crash and this, just the destruction, the burned wreckage of this plane crash, like I said, I had a, a moment because you're going to hear about my nerd side for a minute. I've been listening to a podcast about plane crashes, about what brings planes down. As a plow snow or do some work in my shop, I listen to this. And, and one of the things that the authors of this podcast said that's extremely important for you to, to use as maybe a lens for, for what goes on in Israel is, is no plane or planes typically don't crash because of one big problem. Planes typically fall out of the air. Planes typically crash because of a, a cascade of bad decisions or neglect or faults in equipment, pilot error. There's usually multiple small things that add up that bring a plane out of the air because aircraft travel is the safest way to go. And so the, 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 the authors of this podcast point out that, that there's human error and, and different things that add up to, to cause this disaster and this carnage. And as you think about plane crashes... I just want to kind of bring it home for a second to just give you a, a visual picture because it's, it's kind of hard to read about the disaster in, in Israel and, and picture us going through the same thing, but I think we identify with plane crashes because most of us have been traveling by air or have traveled by air. This, this crash scene that you see on the screen behind me is a crash site of Air France Flight 4590. And you see some investigators going through the wreckage there, picking about the pieces, doing their investigation. So maybe as we go through Lamentations here in a moment, Lamentations 4, you can look at this as, as kind of a crash scene investigation. And, and they do this investigation, they listen to the black box and the flight data recorder because they want to figure out why did this happen and how can we make sure it never happens again? How can we make sure that we don't have this disaster? And as they went through their investigation, we'll kind of look at what brought this plane down real quick to show you that it really is a cascade of bad decisions and, and errors and mistakes and cut corners that cause a disaster like this. So on July 25th, 2000, Air France Flight 4590 took off from Paris headed to New York. 
The first errors that the investigators noticed was that the plane was overloaded by luggage and overloaded by fuel. You might think that this is a common thing, but, but what this is is the pilots knew they were both overweight because of fuel and overweight because of cargo, and they made the decision to take off anyways. But it wasn't just that that brought the plane down. As often as the case, there's a cascade of problems, and I told you that uh, this starts out being overloaded with fuel and cargo. But a part that stabilized the landing gear and kept the plane on a straight track down the runway had been left off of the landing gear by the last guy to do maintenance on that plane. After the plane crashed, killed all these people, they went back to the maintenance shed and found the stabilizing brace on the work desk. So this would have kept the plane on a straight track down the runway. So that was error number two. Unfortunately, it gets worse. As the plane went down the runway, overloaded, too heavy, traveled so far down the runway that it hit debris on the runway that had been missed by the people inspecting the runway. This debris was a strip of titanium that was about 22 inches long and one inch wide. It hit the tire of the Concorde jet, which caused the tire to explode and hit the wing of the jet. As you can see here, flaming fuel is pouring out of the Concorde jet. If you're not familiar with it, they carry thousands of gallons of fuel so they can fly across the ocean supersonic. So this piece of metal, this 22 inch long piece of metal, one inch wide piece of metal, the investigation determined fell off the plane that left the runway five minutes before this Concorde jet. And unfortunately, tragically, frustratingly, this was intentionally, incorrectly installed on that plane, its person, months ahead. This maintenance guy cut a corner and put a titanium strip on where a softer aluminum strip was required. And what it comes down to is he made a decision that he thought would have no impact, and it didn't even impact the plane that this was installed on. This, this is the worst part of the investigation. They find that this is what struck the tire that blew up the wing that caught the plane on fire and caused the plane to crash 90 seconds after it took off into a hotel, killing all 110 people on board and four people working in that hotel that day. So I want to give you a real-world example as we look at just unimaginable distraction, uh, destruction and, and lamentations for about how a cascade of decisions, knowingly wrong decisions, cut corners, the people who were responsible didn't do what was right. And that's where we find ourselves in Lamentations 4. Now there's a lot that happened in Judah, and I want to give you these references to write down, because if you're like me, sometimes the historical background helps. I think it's particularly helpful when you read what we're about to read is some of the worst things that could happen to the most vulnerable people. So I want you to know a couple things, especially if you're joining us online and, and maybe you found this service for the first time. We're glad that you're here but maybe you should go back next week's, or last week's sermon and hear about the heart of God. And if you don't, if you're new to God and who he is to you, how can he be your God? You're going to read this chapter and see the destruction and, and kind of wonder how he can be a good, loving God. But the context really helps. See, in Deuteronomy 28, Israel was warned specifically about what would happen to them if they turned away from God. If you read this chapter, it will amaze you how on point it is for what happens to them in Lamentations, in the book of Lamentations, the destruction you see. It's almost word for word. In 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you get the history of what happens. You read about how the king tried to sneak out of the city. This king, this guy who was responsible for the, for the God-following intent of his city, tried to sneak out and was captured by the Babylonians. We'll read about that happening in chapter 4, but the history is really important. And most sobering of all, in Jeremiah 38 through 39, you'll read about Jeremiah the prophet's last conversations with this king before he dies, not Jeremiah, before the king dies in exile, warning him, turn to God. 
Turn yourself in. Give up. You're doing the wrong thing. Jeremiah's put back in, in lockup, and the king disregards, probably because he's afraid. He's got a safe face. He's, he's, he wants to keep his power, not give it up. It's helpful to see that background and context, though, when we see what happens in this chapter. I just want you to know going in, they were warned. God warned them and warned them and warned them. Now help us understand as we read some of these things that are, are hard to read. Jeremiah, Jeremiah or, or the poet, uh, we think it might be Jeremiah, but the poet starts in chapter 4 showing us how the tables have turned for Israel by saying how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. He's saying the, the things that were worth the most, the gold, the holy stones of, of the priest's uh, garb were thrown out like cobblestones in the road. So, so everything that has value is now meaningless. When you're starving to death, it doesn't matter how much money you have if you can't buy any food with it. This is where Judah has found themselves. The precious sons of Zion worth more, their, more than their weight in gold, and fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. These, these, these future kings, these precious men and women of Israel uh, living in, in Jerusalem are now just thrown out like broken vessels. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. We're going to talk about parenting here in a second in a really rough, despicable way. And so the poet says, even the jackals, these wild dogs that eat dead bodies in the streets of burned out villages are better moms than what you're about to see the women of Judah do. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. Again, I want you to know they were warned. But to the poet, he says, these, these children of Israel have become as cruel as wild animals. It's important to note here and a couple other places in this chapter, though, I, there's, there's glimmers of God's character coming through, making its way through some of this destruction. He always calls them his people. He says, my people, and he'll say it again. Just watch for that. Underline it, maybe. They're still his people, and that's primarily why this is happening. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth, for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. You're going to see when, the, when, when evil is unrestrained and a king after king after king had gone through Jerusalem and been evil in the sight of the Lord. Several kings ago, Manasseh was sacrificing his own kids, his own children to foreign gods. And so, so when evil is unrestrained like that, the most vulnerable of the vulnerable suffer. The worst things will happen in this chapter to the most vulnerable. Those who feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. As we go through this investigation, walk through this crash site, one of the things you're going to see is it affects everything. The whole thing is a wasteland. The rich, the powerful, the elite, the rulers, and the people who are already poor are made worse by what happens to Jerusalem. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. The richest of the rich, that purple dye. The poet's saying... Now they sit on a pile of the ashes of all of their wealth. It did nothing for them. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. Again, he's still calling them his people. It's not that he doesn't love them. It's not that he's cutting them off forever. And, and at the end of the chapter, he reassures them of that. But they use this example of Sodom as this Sodom was, was the example in that world of this is what God does to evil countries. 
And they say here, it was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. We had it worse than Sodom. I think the poet is implying here, but we knew better. Sodom was evil. They were godless. Jerusalem had gone this direction where the people in leadership had failed them and they had idols. They made poor alliances and they've become godless. Suffered a fate worse than Sodom. Their princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. These, these models of good looks and establishment and, and privilege, these pure white kings and princes, are sitting like the, the, the poor on the street. They're beggars. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. There's no, there's no worship or, or allegiance to the king because he's in the same position as you. He's, he's not exempt from the suffering of these people. The skin is shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry wood. Again, just to remind, remind you, this is everything is not the way it was. Everything's turned on its side. God's turned over everything. And, and, and soon here the city's going to be burnt to the ground. But just because things aren't the way they were, we as a reader shouldn't, under, we shouldn't assume that the way they were was okay or the way they were supposed to be. So as you look back at what Israel had with that plenty and privilege and national sovereignty and power that we'll talk about here in a minute, there's some parts of that that weren't the way they were supposed to be, mostly the conditions of their hearts. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victim of hunger. See, what has happened in, in, in Jerusalem's day here is that Babylon has actually had a couple waves of disaster that they brought on Jerusalem. And this kind of final death blow that Babylon is doing at the end of Lamentations, they've seen people taken into exile, taken into exile, people dying in battle, and the poet's saying the people who died in battle, last, last wave, last inv invasion, are better than those of us who are starving to death. If you didn't believe that, if you think you'd like to hold out, maybe resist, watch what happens to the people starving to death. They wasted away. They're pierced by the lacks of the fruits of the field. Like I said at the beginning, this chapter gets really dark. And if you have your word in front of you, you'll see what I'm talking about. So as we read these next verses, I want you to capture in your mind the feeling that wells up in your stomach, what you think as you read these verses. I want you to look at that feeling for a second. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. The hands of compassionate women. Things had gotten so bad that, that the, the prized possession, the future of this nation has become their food. Now, if you're like me, when you read that, you have disgust, contempt, anger. You're frustrated, probably frustrated because I told you they've been warned. If you read Deuteronomy 28, they were warned this exact thing was going to happen. So think about that disgust and contempt and, and realize this morning we sung about a holy God. Capture that picture, that feeling of disgust and contempt. This is how he looks at the sin that Jerusalem was doing. It's how he looks at and feels about the choices they're making. Remember the desperation, Nathan waving that red flag, God saying, it doesn't have to be like this. You don't have to do this. God's, God's looking at, at what they're doing, what, what they've been doing to turn away from him, what their leaders are doing, with the same way we feel when we read about moms eating their kids. Think about how awful that is to him. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. 
they're still his people. And God's still going to accomplish his purpose through this. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. So we've, uh, last week we reached the kind of spiritual climax of Jerusalem where they, they turned, albeit briefly, to God and said, your, your steadfast love never ceases. And now we're reaching the, the, the destruction, the climax of destruction. We've just watched the worst thing happen to the most vulnerable. And so God's full anger is, is being poured out on the sins of this city and these people. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. This is literal and figurative. They, they, Babylonians burned the city to the ground, took the walls that, that were precious and protective for the people, and this temple that was really their idol. Nothing could ever happen to us. We have the temple, and we'll read here in a minute. The whole world looked at them like that and burned it to the ground. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. As I was thinking about this passage, it came, it came to mind to me when I was in high school and I watched uh, 9-11 unfold and how the whole world gave us their condolences as a nation. Nobody could believe that America could have something like this happen. All of this loss of life, this violation of our security, this attack, everybody couldn't believe. And I just want you to see this, this is the same, only this was their their sovereign city, their precious city, Jerusalem, the idol, the, or I'm sorry, the jewel and idol, the jewel of, of, of their dynasty was destroyed. And the whole world is looking at them. Even Babylon probably is, is, is amazed that they're pulling this off. It was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. So go back to that crash scene as you walk around and you start to determine, okay, Where's this peace that's supposed to stabilize us, keep us on track? The pilots, knowing that their plane is over full, that they have too much fuel, too much weight on board. That mechanic who put the wrong piece on and knew it and thought there'd be no cost. We start to see some of the causes of what's happening to Jerusalem here. The prophets and the priests, the men who were there to lead them towards God, had substituted God for an idol or privilege, or power, or hey, as long as I go along with the king, who is also evil, we'll be all right. They shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Now the tables turning start to expose some of the sin. So before the tables turned and exposed some of these idols and some of these problems, we started to see what's going on. Watch what happens to these priests and these prophets. They wandered blind through the streets. The, the men responsible for seeing for Israel what God would want them to do now can't see for themselves. They were defiled with blood so that no one was able to touch their garments. They were the picture of cleanliness. And now what's going on in their heart comes out to the outside. And people, these poor destroyed people, in the midst of their destruction can recognize that their prophets and priests are unclean. Unclean, unclean, people cried in verse 15. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers, these prophets and priests. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. They, the, the, the guys that were, were responsible for the nation of Israel became vagrants that nobody wanted. What a table has turned. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. Now, we, we started this series with a postcard that we sent out. If you, if you get the mail in 49010, you got a postcard. It says, where is God in my loss? 
And Nathan led us a couple weeks ago through preventable and predictable pain and loss and unpredictable and unpreventable pain and loss. So this is pain that Jeremiah is talking about, the poet's talking about, was predictable, preventable pain. But God here in verse 16 is still working in this loss. The Lord himself scattered them, regarded them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save them. So that last, we're, we're getting to the end of the chapter. So that last couple weeks of the siege, they're looking out over the walls, past the Babylonian army, saying, is there anybody coming to save us? Are any of our alliances going to bail us out? Are, are, they're, they're looking past the temple that represents the God they've abandoned, looking over this wall, saying, is somebody going to come bail us out? These countries that we've made alliances with. What were they told about these countries when they moved into the land? Don't have anything to do with them. Don't marry them. Don't follow their gods. And what did they do? They made alliances. They married into them. And they followed their gods. And how are these alliances paying off for them? History tells us Egypt actually came out a little while to try to help and turned around and went back. So maybe they were looking to the south to Egypt to bail them out. But think about alliances right now and how desperate they're there watching, watching, watch. And nobody helped and saved them. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Everywhere they went, they were hunted down. End drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Think of this as like the last line in their diary of what happened in Jerusalem. The end's here. We know it now. They've taken the walls. Now they're holed up in the temple. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. So even the few people who were lucky enough to escape the walls were hunted down by Babylon or, or by Edom and turned into Babylon and were taken off to exile. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits of whom we have said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Who were they talking about when they were calling out the Lord's anointed? The king? They were talking about their king. And the language that they use here in verse 20 reminds me of something else that, that we've seen before as we've gone through some psalms and as we've gone through the Gospels. They were looking at their king as the Lord's anointed, which he was. As, as a king, he was anointed to lead them to God. But he wasn't doing what he was anointed to do. And then they look at him as, we're going to hide under your protective shadow. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. This is where you start to see that God is making it clear to his people that he's accomplishing his purpose, but there's punishment for somebody else to come. I mentioned Edom. Edom in Obadiah 11 through 14, you can look it up later. There's a judgment against Edom because of how they treated Israel when they were in their need. Not as an ally, but they picked off their stragglers and turned them into Babylon. So it wouldn't have been a good ally to begin with. But God is clearly acting here because of what he's about to tell Edom. He says, rejoice and be glad. So eat, drink, and be merry. But this cup that you're going to get drunk on, but to you also, this cup shall pass. What is he talking about, cup? Suffering? Disaster? What's happening to Israel? He's saying, Edom, it's coming to you. You're evil too. And God doesn't just specifically judge the evil of his people. He judges all evil. It's important to remember out of this passage. 
and you'll become just like them, stripped bare, humiliated, destroyed. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. This is so important, and we'll get to some of our application as it's tied to this verse. Last week we learned that God's loving kindness, his steadfast love never ceases. And a big takeaway today is that he accomplishes his purposes. As terrible as this disaster was, as unfathomable as this was, he's accomplishing his purpose. He's reassuring his daughter. I love that language. It's, it's done. If he was cruel, he would have just kept on destroying them, destroying them, destroying them. There wouldn't have been anything left. And we know there was something left. There was a remnant left. A remnant that would lead back to a new nation of Israel where our Savior would be born. So he's telling him, I've accomplished my purpose. Don't lose hope. He will keep you in exile no longer. Now this is written as they go off to exile. But he's telling them, there's a purpose to this. I'm accomplishing it. And there'll be an end to your exile, don't forget. We know from biblical history that a couple generations later, they come back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. He's kept his promises in that. Your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Book ends, chapter ends with a reminder to Edom that your sins are about to be uncovered. So what do we know went wrong as we go through this crash scene and see what happens to the nation of Israel and walk through this carnage and see and smell and hear things that we never thought we'd experience? What do we know went wrong with Israel? Well, I think it boils down to their idols, leaders, and alliances. We touched on that as I kind of read through that crash report that is chapter 4. Think about idols for a minute here. Mark Rogop gives us a good quote in this chapter. Again, if you haven't read it, go back and, and reread this chapter. It'll help you kind of personally apply this text better than we have uh, time for today. He says, we worship idols. We allow them to control us because what we believe they will give us. We allow them to control us. And we, we think of idols as gods we can control, but they, in fact, control us. He goes on to say, the true test of idolatry is our response to its loss. Look at how Israel responds to losing their security, their safety, all of their wealth, all of their food, their status. Do we think about idols in the same way? Look at how you react to the loss of whatever you think your idol might be. Is it a position? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it a group? Is it a party? Is it a friend? Look at how you respond to their loss. That loss, that catastrophe points at these causes that we talked about. Also, their leaders talked about how the leaders failed. They had this responsibility to lead the nation to God, and they led him away from God. Zedekiah, King Zedekiah was a king in a line of evil kings who did what was evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord. And their priests and prophets were evil too. Think for a second, what would have happened if none of the priests and prophets would have signed up for what Zedekiah was doing? If there weren't priests and prophets to bow to Baal or Molech or any of these other gods, and the prophets would have stood up. Zedekiah would have kind of been a one-man show. But instead, everybody went along leading the people away. 4.13 touches on this, reminding us this happened because of the iniquities and sins of the prophets and priests. The breath of our nostrils under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. The king wasn't exempt from this too, and he got his punishment. As he snuck out of the city and was captured by the Babylonians, the last sight that he saw before his eyes were gouged out was his lion being killed. All of his children being killed in front of him, and he walked off to exile in Babylon. So he was punished for his sins. But this reminds us that this leader, this king, was responsible for his nation. 
Psalm 17 touches on a point where David uses the same language, reminding us of who it's supposed to be associated with. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God, he says in verse 6 of 17. Incline your ear to me, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Now listen to this. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Instead of allowing their king to be the breath of their nostrils and their shelter, maybe they would have looked at God through their king and said, be our shelter, be our protection. But I want you to see that this is, a, this is, this is the heart of God for us that carries on into the New Testament. Christ is near the temple and he's looking at Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in Matthew 23, 37, the city that kills the prophets and the stones who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus says, years and years and years after this, you're still not willing to be gathered by me. You're going to be gathered by a king who's going to lead you away. He's saying this to Jerusalem, and as Nathan pointed out a couple weeks ago, the cycle repeats itself for Jerusalem with the, with the nation of Rome. Lastly, what else do we know wrong? Kind of finishing up this report. All their alliances cost them. They failed to find anybody who would come to their rescue. And, and the, the saddest part of this is they were warned that God would be their help. That these alliances, these nations would lead them astray. Don't follow their gods. Please don't marry them. God, again, waving this red flag, as Nathan did, warning them about what this would cost them. So ask, ask about this. What was the cost of their alliances? What well, cost them everything? As they married in earlier on and they, they made alliances, it cost them everything. Northern Israel was already gone. They were gone to the Assyrians before this. Now the last part, Judah here, is getting wiped off the face of the earth. So what should we do differently? As I said, airline travel is the safest type of travel. Well, it is because they learn from these kinds of disasters. So how can we learn from this kind of disaster in Lamentations? Well, I would say that this is kind of some of the findings that we can use to, to make ourselves not head the same direction as Israel did here. Examine. We're calling ourselves to examine what are the idols in our lives. Mark Brogop pointed out so perfectly how we deal with its loss will point out that it was an idol. He puts elsewhere in 120, page 124 of the same chapter, an idol is simply an object of trust that takes the emotional and practical place of God. He's telling you it's, it can be emotional. It, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's being in the winning team, being on the powerful side. It's a good warning. So examine. Examine if you have those idols taking that place. Test. There's important questions we can ask about the leadership and the movements we're following. If Israel would have asked this, what is the fruit of what we follow? What would have happened generations before when Manasseh sacrificed his kids to Molech? People looked at that and said, I don't think we should be following this king. I, I don't think this is what we should do. Ask yourself, as, as, you, as you examine your heart for idols, your life for idols, Ask yourself about the leadership and the movements you follow. What kind of fruit do we follow? I know you all probably get tired of hearing about Facebook, but I think Facebook's a pretty telling thing. What, what are you advertising for? What do you show that you're following after? What riles you up? What makes you happy? What pleases you? Maybe some of the fruit of what we follow will help us see, are we on the right track? Are we following these priests 
prophets and kings that are pulling us off course. Lastly, trust. Lamentations, the process of lamenting, this whole process we've gone through for the last several weeks, is to take us back to a relationship of trust with God. So I have to ask you, as you think about alliances, what are you trusting in? Did Israel made these alliances that ended up costing them everything? A question you could ask yourself about what you're trusting in is what do our alliances cost us? How have you seen people turn to the wrong thing, the wrong people, the wrong group? How is the church, I mean, not First Baptist, but also First Baptist, how is the global church allying themselves with movements, causes? How are you personally or your family allying yourself with something? What is it going to cost you? If Israel, again, would stop and look at this crash report and save themselves this pain, then what happened generations later in the time of Christ probably wouldn't have happened. I want you to be thinking about these things as we close with some songs and, 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 and seek ways that you can examine what you're putting your trust in this morning. We'll close with a time of worship and be back up here to dismiss you. I want to invite you after we worship together to uh, participate in the sermon discussion groups here and remotely. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that you love us enough to warn us. We thank you that you're not cruel and that your love for us does not fail, but you are honest. You've warned us through your word. You've given us your word. Thank you for that. Just pray as we worship that it'd be pleasing to you and that we would examine who we are tying ourselves to allying ourselves to what our trust is in. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.